Let's talk hoops. Let's talk crossovers. Let's talk dimes. Let's talk hoops. Let's talk rumor. Let's talk opinions. Let's talk truth. Let's talk future. Let's talk present. Let's talk past. Fundamentals and flash. Me running the flow. Stango running the show like a young Steve Nash. I'd like to welcome all of you to the Great Point Podcast. This is the Great Point Podcast. I'm Adam Stanko. You know, the NBA draft is getting closer and closer, and I really wanted to dive deep into the draft. So I'm bringing back on my podcast partner in crime, Matt Walsh. As we've talked about on the podcast before, Matt was one of the top college players in the early 2000s, starring for Billy Donovan's Florida Gators. He made the SEC All-Freshman team, was a two-time second-team All-SEC selection, won an SEC Tournament MVP award, declared for the draft after his junior year at Florida and was projected as a first-round pick, went undrafted, ended up playing in the NBA for the Miami Heat, and had a tremendously successful career overseas. Matt, welcome back to the Great Point Podcast. Thanks. Happy to be here, but I have to correct you on a few things. Come on, man. It was Mid two thousands, not early two thousands. I'm getting old. You got to give me those years now. <laughs> okay, okay. I, I uh, I'm getting old, so I misremember those years. <laughs> is probably what it is. Uh, Matt, I, I think the first thing I want to ask you before we get into specific players and and prospects is somebody who obviously went through the process, and we've talked about on the podcast before. You know your whole journey and all. What do you think GMs and scouts should be looking for in an NBA draft prospect? Well, I think probably the hardest thing that it is for the, you know, the GMs and the, the front office guys is to get to know the actual kid that they're drafting and what kind of kid they're, they're drafting. Because they have, you know, most of these guys, they have one year of film, which they look at, they can tell whether he can play or not. And then they have maybe one or two interviews, and then they're asking, you know, third party is who this kid really is. Is he going to be a hard worker? Because, you know, when you're investing a top five pick, a top ten pick in a kid, you want to make sure that you're getting, the, you know, the guy that's going to be the first one at the gym, last one to leave. And for me, you know, looking at it, that would be that would be my focus if I was a GM or a front office person. I would want to make sure that you're you're not going to miss on the kind of person the kid is because that's the worst way to miss. I mean, even if he can play, you know, you may end up, you may end up being the, you know, not being able to be a success in the NBA. All right. That being said, when you were at Florida, you obviously played with some guys that turned out to be stars in the NBA and some guys that didn't end up making it. How much could you project their professional futures while you were playing with those guys at Florida? Well, it was tough. You know, freshman year, most of those guys didn't play a whole lot for us. Al Horford probably played the most, and, you know, uh, Corey Brewer ended up making an impact. But it was pretty clear from from the beginning, um, and as they matured that freshman year, that those guys had the right, the right makeup and the right character, and, you know, they worked really hard. And what's most important with those guys in particular is they had – the right priority. They wanted to win and nothing else. It never mattered who scored points and, you know, who, who got the, the attention. Uh, so they had their minds in the right place. So it was pretty, pretty early on. You could see that Joe Kim was going to be the leader, the vocal leader. And you could see that Al Horford was going to outwork everyone. And early on, you could tell those guys, those guys were the real deal. 
let, let's get to something else that's near and dear to your heart, and that's the Philadelphia 76ers. Obviously, you grew up outside of Philadelphia, as did I. We've seen what's happened with the Sam Hinkie rebuild, um, tear it down, <laughs> build it back up, again, whatever you want to call it, um, that we've watched out of the, the Sam Hinkie regime over the last few years, and now you know the, the Colangelo regime taking over. Who would you draft first overall if you were running the Sixers? I think they really want to come down. I think there's a lot of smoke and mirrors right now, but I think they have no choice but to draft Simmons. I think Simmons is the one guy in this draft who is clearly the type of player who can be a generational type player. When you talk about his size, uh, you know, 6'10", 240, and he's averaging around five assists per game. Uh, the way he sees the floor... I mean, he averaged five assists a game on a on a team that you know what quite frankly wasn't very good. Um, I think Simmons has a chance to be, you know, the next superstar in the NBA. And I I think when it comes down to it, I, I don't think there's many discussions going on in the Sixers front office about who they're going to take. I think that's pretty much decided. Yeah, I I agree with you. I think that um, the Sixers are definitely taking Simmons. We know that uh, you know their coach Brent Brown has. A relationship that dates back to you know Brown's time in Australia knows all about Simmons. Not afraid of the the red flags that we've been hearing, um, but I'm curious as to how much you're worried about the red flags. I mean, we we've seen all the greatness from from Simmons. I, I've been huge on him since I watched him in high school, and all the things you talked about his size, his vision. I love the rebounding ability. You know, was one of the top rebounders in the country this year. A lot of people were trying to say that he sort of quit on his team, you know, late in the season. But to me, he uh, was still producing even in games when they were losing, even in games when they were down. I didn't, I didn't see those those same red flags. But we do know that the winning wasn't there. It was an NIT team. Obviously, LSU refused to play in the NIT. So, how much do do the red flags that people have talked about, how much do they concern you? I don't think I'm as concerned as most. I think a lot of that is due to the fact that Simmons was probably looking around and thinking that he was head and shoulders above every other player. I think some of it may have been boredom. And he, you know, as a result of the system, he was probably ready to go to the NBA last year. And, you know, he's probably thinking to himself that this is just a, you know, a one-year stop, and it's hard for, you know, a kid in that situation, 18 years old, he knows he's not going to be there long. How invested can he be? My guess is he's going to be one that once he is in the NBA and his focus is 100% on basketball, and all he has to do is show up and go to work and, and play basketball, I think he's going to benefit greatly from that. So for me, I mean, I would, if I'm a GM and I'm going to draft him with this first pick, I'm obviously going to take a close look at those things and talk to everybody down at LSU that I can. but for me, it wouldn't be anywhere close enough of uh, of a factor to not take him number one. You know, a friend of mine threw out the theory that his seeming disinterest in the college game this year just might be because of his background. That, you know, college basketball to him may not have been as huge because he grew up in Australia. How much truth do you think there might be to something like that? Yeah, I, I was going to mention that too. You know, it, it may have been a cultural thing. You know, he grew up in Australia, where you know that you know if you play at a high level there, a lot like in Europe, you, you just go and you start playing professionally. So he wasn't caught up in the the allure of being a big time college basketball player. 
I truly believe that he looked at it as, you know, one year kind of like a, he was an apprenticeship <laughs> getting ready for the right. NBA. And he, I, I think a lot of it was boredom, you know. I think he looked around and saw the guys he was playing with and thought, like, I belong at the next level and I'm not going to be here long, so let's get this over with and, and, and be done with it. And, you know, obviously you'd like for any kid to, you know, have a better attitude than that and to look at it more as a professional, but he's 18 years old. So to have some of those kind of things go on, for me, like I said, it's, it's not it's not too big of a deal. Yeah, and when you look at previous comparisons, um, he's such a unique prospect. I mean, we saw Royce White a few years ago uh, playing at the college level who obviously wasn't in anywhere near the shape or didn't have the size or length of of Simmons, but just the fact that you had a big man bringing the ball up the floor and who was a good passer. Um, I People have said Lamar Odom is, a, is an apt comparison. I see a lot of Danny Manning when I've gone back and looked at tape of Danny Manning. I mentioned before, like just a guy that can control the game. They're very similar size-wise. Obviously, I'm talking about pre-injury Danny Manning, uh, and Danny Manning was an excellent passer too, not at the level of Simmons, and and Manning was was probably a more proficient scorer, but at the same time, um, didn't rebound as well as as Ben Simmons did. One of the other knocks on Simmons has been the fact that he's not a guy who's going to knock down outside shots. And in fact, a lot of people that watched him in high school thought his shooting has actually regressed since high school. How much of a concern is that to you, the fact that he lacks an outside shot in today's NBA? Obviously, you know, in the, the landscape of the NBA now, anybody who can't shoot, no matter what position, really, unless you're a center, it's a concern. But, you know, what I look at, when I look at a guy like him, you look, is his shot broken? Is it something that he has such a terrible-looking shot that there's no hope? And I don't think that's the case. I think he's got a good-looking shot. I think that, again, once he's in the NBA and his only job is to be a basketball player, they're going to have him in there, you know, before practice taking shots, after practice taking shots. That's something that I think can be fixed. And in terms of the comparison, uh, you know, when you have a big lefty like that, it's hard to, it's hard to, at least for me mentally, to, to look at another right-hander. So immediately Lamar Odom comes to mind. Um, but he's so much more physical than Lamar Odom. And he can, you know, he has some of those same passing skills that it's going to be interesting. I think he has a chance to be really good. And I think another thing that may have been, you know, added to the shooting at LSU was that, he felt like he didn't need to shoot from the outside. He was so much better than everyone that he could, you know, find a way to get to the basket even if they dared him to shoot. So I, th- I think that people are going to be surprised by his shooting even, you know, in year one. Yeah, I, I agree with all those things that you're saying, and I, I think we're on the same page. And you, you touched on something uh, about the smoke and mirrors, which I've always believed in. I, I have a theory that there's always interest in the number two player on people's quote unquote big board. Uh, it always seems to be that whenever we have a consensus number one pick, that guy during the course of the college basketball season just gets picked apart, uh, which makes the number two guy a fan favorite or at least you know a media favorite. And I'm I'm curious as to how much you think. You touched on it, but how much do you think that uh, Ingram's hype has been sort of a result of the fact that people want to pick apart Ben Simmons's game, and people haven't really taken the time to pick apart Brandon Ingram's game? I think it's a lot of it. Uh, you know, I alluded to it, like you said, and um, you know, when you have a guy who's been the clear number one for so long, 
it's kind of like, you know, when I was coming out, people say like, oh, well, if you stay an extra year to, you know, the younger guys, all they're going to do is pick you apart. And now Simmons has been at the top of the board for a full year. There's, you know, there's everyone said, you know, the first month of the season, everyone gushed about him and raved about him. And now it's, you know, how can we, how can we prove this guy isn't worthy of the number one pick? And like you said, that just boosts Brandon Ingram. And people, you know, immediately start saying, oh, Brandon Ingram, he's like Kevin Durant. You don't hear any of the negatives, but I mean, people need to relax a little bit with those comparisons. I mean, Kevin Durant averaged 26 and 12 or something as a freshman and dominated, scored 40 points. I mean, Brandon Ingram's a very good player. I think he has a chance to be a very good pro. But I do agree that a lot of, you know, the steam he's gaining and the, oh, he should be the number one pick has to do with the fact that people are trying to bring Simmons down a notch. It's interesting. I mean, Ingram fits in today's sort of ideal NBA, especially when people look at the Warriors and see, you know, the versatility and the length. And you look at guys like the Greek freak and you see that sort of the next generation of players that everyone's sort of interested in are these long guys who can also step outside and and knock down a, a jumper. And obviously we know that that Ingram can do that. I want to get into Ingram more in a moment, but just one more thing on on uh, Ben Simmons, and that is the idea of fit versus overall talent. And we know right now, looking at the Sixers roster as it's currently constructed, Jaleel Okafor and Nerlens Noel up front, that they, you know, Brown tried to mesh them together all year. Joel Embiid was a guy who obviously everyone had high hopes for, and then we haven't seen him on the court yet. Dario Saric, we don't know if he's coming uh, to the Sixers this year or you know when he'll be coming to the Sixers. So right now we know that's the Sixers front court situation. So strictly in terms of fit, you'd imagine that Ingram would be a better fit for them. But tell me about how you would approach it if you were the GM. Obviously, you'd said you'd take Simmons. So then how would you handle the whole situation in terms of how he fits along with the rest of that front line? Well, I think, first of all, you have to look at it that you can't ever count on getting the opportunity to draft number one again, hopefully. So you have to look at it that if you have the opportunity to draft someone who you think can be a superstar in this league, no matter who you have at that position, you have to do it. So I think, first and foremost, you accept the fact that if you're the Sixers front office that no matter what the fit with another player, you know, I mean, they need shooting. Does that mean you take Buddy Heald number one? In my mind, absolutely not, you know. You take Simmons and you figure the rest out later. Because hopefully if these draft picks and these guys they drafted the last few years start developing the way they hoped, it's a good problem. You have a glut in your front court and, you know, you, dra- you you trade for that shooter that you need. So for me, it wouldn't even be a question. You take Simmons, you know, I you know I listen to Philadelphia Sports Radio every day and everyone now is talking about trading Okafor. I would even take a step back with that. I think Okafor has a chance to be a good player, even though he doesn't quite fit what the, the NBA is going towards right now. I say, I, if I were them, I would take a take a deep breath, see what you have with Embiid, keep them all where they are now, and then, you know, I don't think they're going to get value for Okafor in terms of getting the second pick or getting even the third pick. So if you're not going to get that kind of value, you keep everyone, you see what you have, and then a few months down the line, you evaluate, then you make a deal almost been predetermined that Embiid is going to be a superstar if he's healthy. I don't know that I fall in line with that. When he was at Kansas with Wiggins, we saw great potential. We saw great talent. His workouts were phenomenal. Um, but Andrew Wiggins took on all the focus when they were playing together at Kansas. They had Wayne Selden, too. 
Um, but that team was, you know, the defense was constantly focused around uh, Andrew Wiggins. And it's not so much that I don't think Embiid has great potential. It's just I don't think he's a sure thing. Um, I, I don't think he took more than nine field goal attempts in any one game during his uh, during his season at Kansas. And so for a guy not to have been the focus at the college level, I, that, that concerns me. And then when you factor in a guy being out for that long, uh, you know that has to impact him some. So Embiid, um, to me, not necessarily a sure thing, and that throws a whole wrench in the mix. I don't know if you disagree with me on that. No, absolutely. I mean, that should – the fact that he never took more than nine field goal attempts should be enough to give everyone pause. And people are anointing him as if, you know, he's the next Hakeem Olajuwon. I hope he is. I hope he's a great player. But the fact that he's missed two full seasons, the fact that he's a seven-footer who's a heavy seven-footer, who has had two foot surgeries and the fact that he never took more than nine shots in a game when he was the second option on the team are all red flags. And to me, I mean, he would have to have a full season of no injuries. And even then with big guys with feet problems, you just don't know how long they're going to last. I mean, you look at Yao Ming or, uh, you know, a number of guys. So for me, I would almost move forward if I was the Sixers with the assumption that you're never going to get anything out of him until he proves, until he proves you wrong. Because if you assume you're going to have Embiid and then you don't and you trade Okafor, you trade Noel, I mean, then you're back at square one and all this work that you've done three years of tanking was for naught. So so we're the same page on Simmons and the Sixers. Uh, and we agree, I think, on the Ingram situation. Is Ingram to you the clear cut number two? He is. I mean, as much as I think Simmons is the clear number one, I think that's how clear it is that Ingram's number two. I don't think he's the level of prospect that Durant was that a lot of people are saying he is. But you can't deny 6'9", can shoot the ball the way he can. He's a full year younger than Simmons. He's only 18. Um, Like you said, he fits the perfect mold of what you want in that 3-4 combo in the NBA. He's long enough to guard fours. He's going to gain some muscle once he's in the NBA. And he can just flat out shoot and score. And watching him in in, in his games this year and in the tournament, it looks to me like he has that killer instinct, which I really like. You know, he wanted the shots late. He was willing to take the shots. So I just don't think there's another prospect who has the potential and who also has has shown what he can do at such a high level like Ingram. Yeah, I think people have to be really excited about him. I know he's still it's, – it's weird. You can almost just see it in him. You know, certain guys, you don't know what their, what their ceiling is going to be, but you know that – it can't be too great. It's almost like with Ingram, like it's it's a blank canvas. I mean, he's still very frail. He's skilled, but you know his frame hasn't filled out at all. His his game, just from anyone that's watched him over the last couple of years, you know, Hoop Summit last year, what have you, like it's a guy that is really just coming on strong and people have to be incredibly excited about what the, the future holds for the kid. The number three pick in the draft is where really a lot of people feel like, all right, this is where the draft is going to start because we expect the Sixers to go with Simmons at one, Ingram going to the Lakers at two. But at number three, the Celtics have an interesting decision to make. Do they do they move that pick or do they go with someone like Dragon Bender, who's regarded as the top international prospect in this year's draft? Cal's freshman Jalen Brown, who was very, very talented kid, very athletic kid, but who struggled with his shot late in the year. Jamal Murray, 
people considered him a combo guard at Kentucky. I'm more on the side of him being a shooting guard, but I absolutely love Jamal Murray. Marquise Chris at Washington, uh, who's got a ton of potential and is skyrocketing up a draft board. Buddy Heald, as you just mentioned, from Oklahoma, or even Chris Dunn, uh, the point guard from Providence. So out of those guys, uh, who out of that group stands out to you? Well, first of all, I think I'd be shocked if Boston has this pick on draft night. And that's just based on what I, how I view Danny Ainge's strategy. And I think that when you have the clear number, the, the top two picks like this who are so clear, and then it's a crapshoot after, I'd be shocked if Danny Ainge doesn't try and get maximize the value of that pick and get rid of it. With that said, if they keep the pick, man, you know, it's so wide open after that, like you said. I mean, I'm a big Jamal Murray fan. I, I agree, uh, you know, at, at the position he's going to play in the NBA. I think he has a chance to be really good. Now, do do they reach and take him at three when most, most drafts have him anywhere from six to ten? I'm not sure. And then, like you said, also Dragon Bender. He's a really interesting prospect. I mean, is he going to be the next Darko Milicek, the guy who gets drafted, you know, who barely averaged any points in Europe, and he just looks like he has the potential to be a stud? Or could he, you know, turn out to be the next, uh, you know, European superstar in the NBA? I'm not sure, but I think that there's, like you said, there's so many different directions they could go. I'd be shocked if they if they have that pick just based on, you know, how Danny Ainge operates. Let's talk about Murray for a second because we both really seem to like him. Last year in the uh, Pan Am games, he played for Canada, averaged 16 points a game against some pretty good competition and was really brilliant uh, throughout the Pan Am games. Then we saw him average 20 a game as a freshman at Kentucky. And people forget this is a kid that graduated early from high school. So his game continues to come along. Now he's about 6'5". Uh, not maybe the elite athlete that we see. And that scares some people, but yet still, I think, a very good athlete. And there were questions, again, about him playing, you know, whether he was hard, who liked to score first. Again, I, I see him more as a two, um, but I, I just love his craftiness. I love his ability to uh, find ways to score. And, and most of all, I love that the game seems to come really easy for him. It's almost like he can find ways to create and score just in the flow of the offense. He's not a guy that gets his points from forcing it. Uh, he's a good passer. He's good in the pick and roll. It's almost like there's nothing he can't do, at least what we saw his his freshman year at Kentucky. From what you've seen of Jamal Murray, what's your take overall? Yeah, I think you said it perfectly. I mean, when you watch when you watch guys play, especially this young, if it comes that easy for him at such a high level, that's you know, that's a really nice thing. And like you said, he just he scores so easily. It's so smooth for him out there. It just looks like he looks like the kind of kid who in three or four years when he's 23, 24 years old, when he really figures it out, he could easily be a 25 points per game scorer in the NBA. At least that's how, you know, that's how I view him. Um, I think, like you say, he's got good size. He's 6'5". He's not that elite athlete, but I think he's plenty athletic to be successful in the NBA. And that's why I mentioned him with the Celtics pick, because with Brad Stevens, he just looks like the kind of kid to me that you put him with Brad Stevens, and Brad Stevens is such a good coach that Brad Stevens would just find a way to maximize and get as get so much out of Jamal Murray. I really, you know, from a selfish standpoint, I'd like to see Stevens be able to work with Murray and see the kind of player that he could turn him into. Yeah, no doubt, no doubt. Although it's interesting with that Celtics backcourt, like you said, it's doubtful. It's almost like the best players that they'd have to choose from. Um don't fit because they have these guys that are just tough as hell 
you know, the, the Avery Bradley's Marcus smarts, Isaiah Thomas. It's almost like, I don't know that, that Murray sort of fits in that, in that mix. Although as we've talked about, if a guy's a great player, you almost want to go with a guy that's a great player, regardless of the situation. I'm curious about Bender, Matt, you talked about, you know, the Darko fear that everyone has, and now the tables have almost turned and that people are now also fearful that they miss out on the next great international yeah. prospect, as we saw with, with Porzingis. You know, that's all of a sudden everyone gets blamed for that um, because of what Porzingis' potential is. You know, Bender's a kid from Bosnia-Herzegovina, um, but was playing in Israel last year. What can you tell us as a guy that played overseas for a long time about how we can evaluate international prospects and specifically with Bender, just, um, you know, what kind of competition he was playing against in Israel? Yeah, well, I mean, Maccabi Tel Aviv is one of the best teams in the world outside of the NBA. They've had it down two years, but um, in terms of their overall club and their development of young guys, they're they're one of the best. Now, I was, you know, I, I watched some video on them and I saw some, some of his stats. And he, he, on a team like that, I mean, he's playing with, the top American and European international players in the world. So if you're not in the NBA, you want to play on Maccabi Tel Aviv. So he had some pretty stiff competition in terms of playing time, and he didn't get a whole lot of playing time. But the things I look at were he shot the ball well from three, from three, which when you're you know seven foot one with shoes on and you're 18 years old and you're shooting a three like that and you're as athletic as he is running the court. I mean, you watched him run the court. He just glides down the court. He's not. He's not one of those big lumpy big men. So these are the things you have to evaluate when you don't have a lot of film on guys and when you don't, you know, you don't have him playing 35 minutes against great competition. So that's one thing I don't envy about these, about these front office guys, because, you know, you, you make a career out of these kind of decisions. Um, I do think that there's, there's a big upside, especially like I said, with his shooting, if, if he can turn into that, you know, Porzingis mold that's, seven foot one, seven foot two, and can, can shoot the ball. It's like you said, it's funny, the fear now is turning into, am I going to miss out on the next Porzingis rather than am I going to miss by picking the next military? Buddy Heald, we saw what he did at Oklahoma. We've seen Buddy Heald be great. Uh, we saw that stretch in the NCAA tournament. We saw it earlier in the year against Kansas among others, I mean, the Kansas was the one everyone saw on national TV, but Buddy Heal just had an outstanding year. Now, compared to the other prospects that are being looked at, whether it's Bender or Simmons, Ingram, uh, Jamal Murray, those guys are all much younger, Marquise Chris, Jalen Brown. But meanwhile, Buddy Heal spent time in college, wasn't all that impactful early on in his college career. As a junior, all of a sudden you saw a guy that was a, a very good college player. I think averaged about 15 a game. And then this year, obviously, the the explosion. And we just kept seeing the development of his game. So we know that he's working on his game and he's continuing to improve. But he's kind of also the enigma because now people want to say, hey, if you're a senior, you know, <laughs> have we seen your ceiling? Are you tapped out? What are, what are your thoughts on Buddy Heald? I'm a big Buddy Heald fan. I mean, you alluded to some of the you know great things about him this year. He, he shot the ball great, and you also mentioned you know he, he's twenty he's twenty two years old, so he'll be right around twenty three years old beginning of next season. So that's a big difference from some of these guys who are seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, and that's what I think Heald is the perfect fit at five for Minnesota. You look at Minnesota's team. You got Rubio at one. You got Wiggins at three. Carl Anthony Towns down low. 
They've got a really good core group of young guys, and I think if you add Buddy Heald in there, you're going to add another high-character kid, a kid who can flat-out shoot the ball. He's going to have Rubio and Wiggins uh, collecting a lot of the attention, Rubio on the pick-and-roll. You put Buddy Heald coming up to that high elbow, shooting the three, Wiggins creating for him. I think he's the perfect pick for Minnesota there. I think he's a great kid. I think he's going to be a very good NBA player. I don't know that he is the ceiling of some of these other guys, but I think that he can be I think he can be every bit as good as Bradley Beal in the NBA, even though they may be around the same age. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so I, I think he's going to be a good player, and I think if he gets in the right fit, he can be you know that borderline all-star type player. That's high praise coming from a fellow Gator right there. Yeah, well, uh, I guess I'm a big Buddy Hills man. When you start hitting those bombs, step-back bombs, and off the dribble and coming off screens, I mean, he was fun to watch in March and April. Yeah, yeah. I, I, you know, some he's got some Matt Walsh in his game. I I, uh, I recall those uh, <laughs> Matt Walsh uh, getting the crowd fired up and uh, just getting on a tear like that. And uh, there's something really fun about watching players who have great range and um, get that confident throughout a season and I'm, I'm excited to see him be able to do that at the next level it's it's so funny it's like we watch him during the year buddy is so unique in that we we watch him have this great year shooting the basketball and he, he can create his own shot at least in terms of you know his outside shot uh whether he's he's going to finish as well as some of these other guys that you know remains to be seen at the nba level but we know he can create a perimeter shot and we know that's a need right now in the nba as we see you know obviously what the warriors have done but but more and more teams are using their their outside shooting. So I'm always fascinated by the idea then that all of a sudden his age becomes something that's held against him. And yet, to be fair, I'm also the same guy that's going to say, you know, hey, give me Jamal Murray because I can't wait to see what Jamal Murray is going to be like in three years. So um, yeah. I know it goes back and forth. Uh, I, um, yeah, I mean, it's a, fun, it's a funny balance with that because, you know, do you want a kid who's a little bit more mature, who you know what you're going to get, who may have a little bit less of a ceiling, or do you want to, you know, take a risk on somebody who might be a total bust? And like I said, I, I don't envy those front office guys because, you know, you, you only get you only get to be wrong once. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no kidding. Uh, for most of them, for most of them. Yeah, um, I was going to do a disclaimer there. Say some guys <laughs> get to be wrong a lot, but you only get to be really, really wrong once or twice. Yeah, that is that is true. Now, Matt, two guys that we saw have a major impact on college basketball this past season. Uh, Kentucky's small but uh, brilliant point guard, Tyler Uless, and Michigan State's do-everything, Denzel Valentine. They're each projected as as first-round picks. Now, where they fall in the first round is, is sort of anyone's guess. How about your thoughts on those two? I love Uless. I was hoping we were going to get to him. I love him. <laughs> I think he's going to be a good NBA player. Obviously, he's tiny. He's undersized. I think he only weighs about 150 pounds. But he has a great feel for the game. He's got that it factor. You just see he loves to play. He's got that nasty, like, pit bull in him. I really like Ulysses. I think I think he's going to be an impact player in the NBA. So he's going to find – somebody's going to draft him, and he's going to find a way to work in the rotation, and he's going to be a guy that just sticks. I think he's going to have a long NBA career. Valentine, too. I mean, Valentine's got – uh, you know, all the intangibles. He, he's a great team guy. He averaged like 20 points, eight rebounds, eight assists. Um, the only thing I worry about with Valentine a little bit is just athletically, if he's going to be able to be that, you know, wing guy in the NBA, if he's going to be able to shoot it good enough from the outside and then athletically be able to cut it. 
But I like both of them. I think they're both worthy of mid-first-round picks. And I think whoever gets Uless especially is going to be thrilled that they, they – you know, he's probably going to go late first round. I think they're going to look back and be like, wow, we really got to steal with him. You mentioned the athleticism concern with Valentine, and I think it's a it's a fair one. But you're also a guy that we've spoken about before. You've talked about the idea of how athleticism plays a role at the NBA level and, and the difference in overall athletic ability and the speed of the game, obviously. Why are some guys able to overcome it and some aren't? Well, it's funny because Valentine's a very good athlete. And when I say yeah, that, you don't yeah. struggle athletically, it's just a, it's just the difference of in, a, in the NBA, he's not a very good athlete. You know, he's just an average athlete. And, um, you know, I th- it's really it's really a tough thing to overcome. In order to overcome it at the NBA level, you have to do something absolutely great. You know, you have to be that knockdown shooter that you shoot the ball so well that guys have to guard you so close that you can create space by you know, by through your shot or you have to be such a good rebounder that you know you have to have an NBA skill I remember I heard Hubie Brown talk at NBA camp when I was in when I was in high school and he he kept preaching to us he's like you want to play in the NBA you have to have one NBA skill that teams can't live without and if you're not going to be that super athlete then that holds true more than more than anyone you have to have that NBA skill that something that keeps you on the court something that separates you from everyone else you're much better off having that one NBA skill than kind of like a guy like Valentine who who has, you know, he's so good at everything. That the question for him is going to be what what is that one thing that's going to keep him on the court in the NBA? And, you know, it's funny you say that because I've, I've talked to people about that a lot and, and try to explain to people that, that don't follow the NBA draft maybe all that closely or maybe they're college fans and, and they aren't as big in the NBA. In the NBA, you have your superstars who do a little bit of everything and contribute in multiple ways and always have to be you know, they always have to be contributing, always find ways to to contribute or else their teams are just going to lose. There's, there's no way around it. So they have to do almost everything uh, to lead their teams. But you get beyond those superstars and which gets you to most of the NBA. And the rest of the guys are are guys that are mostly specialists. I mean, like you talk about, you need to be a backup defensive center or, you know, you're a shooter or you're a guy that that maybe is, um, you know, a good team defender. You bring up, I mean, all these points. The interesting thing, though, about Valentine that I find is that, you know, right away you can see it. If you were to go to, he's such a smart player and he's a really good shooter and he does a lot of things really well. If he goes to the Spurs or the Warriors, which could pretty much be said for a lot of these great college players, they could find a role for him and he could really explode. And yet you could also see him going to a team, you know, maybe the Kings who all of a sudden he gets there and it's who is Denzel Valentine and not any one particular skill sticking out. Um, how much do you agree with, with that assessment that it, a lot of this may depend on, on where he ends up? Yeah, you make a great point. And I think that that a lot of guys, NBA fates are determined by that. I mean, you said it perfectly. If, if Valentine goes to the Spurs, Popovich will find a way to make him an effective player. He'll be an effective player for his rookie contract, and then he'll get a really good contract because Pop has, <laughs> you know, turned him into a turned him into a good NBA player. But if, say he goes to a team like the Sixers, or you know, another team where he's expected to do so much, and then he gets exposed for not being able to do that one thing and just kind of being average at at other things at the NBA level, and you know, and then maybe he's out of the league in four years, or he bounces around from team to team for a few years, then he's out of the league. And it, so, I mean, you, you said it perfectly, and I don't think the casual NBA fan realizes that in the NBA, 
you have superstars, and pretty much everyone else is just a role player in one form or another. You know, you may be a role player that's asked to do a little bit more than the, the role player under you, but you're either a superstar or you better find something, one thing that you're going to bring to the table or else, you know, you're, you're not going to be on the court in the NBA. Matt, if the if the last few NBA seasons have, have taught us anything, it's the lineage matters. So you look at Steph Curry and Clay Thompson, both have fathers who played in the NBA. Obviously, Kobe Bryant's dad played in the NBA. Uh, so did your former teammate. You alluded to him earlier, Al Horford, his father Tito. Um, and it brings me to the last guy that I want to ask you about, and that's Gary Payton II, who was pretty special this season for Oregon State. Now, you played with his father, Gary Payton, when you were with the Heat, right? Yes, sir. And I'm curious as to what kind of advantages does a kid whose father who played in the NBA have, especially when that father is the glove? Yeah, I mean, well, besides the the awesome genes. (laughs) Um, (laughs) You know, I think that when you've got, uh, a kid that's his age, you know, he, he grew up seeing his dad in the NBA. He grew up in the locker rooms and he grew up living basketball. And I think that's the biggest thing, uh, like I said, beside the genes is that when your dad plays in the NBA for a number of years or when you, you live the game, you're at shoot around, you're playing basketball, you're at rebounding for your dad when he's working on his game. When, when you're six years old and your dad's retired or eight years old, you know, your dad coaching you, he's giving you the best advice. I mean, you truly do live the game. And there's a difference between that and then some kid who picks up the game at age 12 in seventh grade and then tries to become a good player. When you, I mean, you know, they show the videos of Steph Curry all the time at Del Curry's shoot-around. You hear stories from other guys saying, you know, Steph's been around his whole life. I mean, there's something to that. When, you, when there's been a basketball in your hand since the day you were born and, you know, you have that constant coaching and you're constantly around other players and, you know, all you want to do is watch basketball and live it. There's something to that. And I think you're seeing that more now with every generation. And I think that's going to continue. You're going to continue to see, you know, guys, the lineage come down and guys' sons playing the NBA and guys' daughters playing the WNBA. Um, I, I think that's something that's going to continue. And I don't think there's any secret as to why. Does this mean that we need to make sure your son is getting a scholarship offer right away or what? <laughs> I don't know. My son's my son's all over the place right now. He might be a soccer goalie or uh, <laughs> I'm not sure what he's going to do, but I think he's going to be built more like a power forward too. He's got more muscles now than at four years old than I had my, when I was in the best shape of my life. So hopefully he's going to be a stretch four one day. Oh, awesome. Awesome. Well, Matt, I, I really appreciate you doing this. Um, and I'm excited as as uh, as we get closer and closer to the draft, we're gonna we're gonna continue this this uh, NBA draft series. So hopefully, I can I can bring you on uh, uh, again, maybe a few times as we uh, really try to figure out what's going on, especially as we start to get some rumors and and trades happening. So hopefully, you'll join me for that. But as always, really appreciate your time. Yeah, thank you. I would love that because uh, you know I, I I played against and with some of these European guys who are a little bit further down the list here. So I'd love to talk about them and anytime. You know, I love being on. So thanks a lot, Adam. Wait before before I even let you go, Matt. Then let me ask you about who's. Give me one of the guys that you uh, that you know that uh, we we didn't I'm, get a chance to talk about. I'm sure I'm going to butcher his name, but uh, Furkan Korkmaz. He's a Turkish kid. He played for FS Pilsen and Andolo FS. 
And he was going to be my one, if you ask me, one of my players to watch kind of that's going under the radar here. He is 18 years old. I, he played in the Turkish All-Star game with me two years ago, played for FS. He's six seven. He's got a, probably a size 16 shoe. I think he's going to end up being – I think he could end up being like Turkoglu who comes over here and he ends up growing another two inches. He's going to be a big-time player. He's a great shooter. He was in the dunk contest in Turkey. He was dunking between his legs uh, from underneath the basket. He's my player to watch. Whoever drafts him is going to get is going to get a big time European player, and I think he could be, you know, an all star down the line. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, thanks for contributing that again. Thanks again, Matt, for joining us. And uh, yeah, we will definitely do this again very very soon. Great. Sounds good. Thanks, Adam. That'll do it for this episode of the Great Point Podcast. Please subscribe on iTunes. Thanks for listening, and we'll catch you next time.